Right out of the pages of John chapter 20, Jesus says to doubting Thomas, you'd be more blessed, Thomas, if you could believe in me without seeing. You're more blessed, you're more satisfied, you're more alive, you're, you're happier. That's what the Greek word means, to be blessed. To have this would be a wonderful thing. But the truth is, if we're going to be honest, almost all of us who call ourselves Christians have periods of doubt, seasons of time, or maybe it's a constant struggle where there are parts of the Christian story or parts of our faith that uh, lead to doubt and cause us to wonder if it's really true underneath it all. When I was in seminary, I worked at the information desk, and the desk uh, was right in the middle of where all the faculty would come back and forth, and they'd pick up their messages, and I, I was the receptionist. I'd take phone calls, take messages, and give it to them. It was my part-time job to help pay for seminary. And one day, Dr. Walter Sundberg, the greatest church historian in our seminary, and one of the leading church historians in the world, walks by this information desk where I'm working, and uh, his nickname was Skip. We called him Skippy because, I mean, world-renowned church history scholar, and we call him Skippy, but we called him Skippy because he was always so well-dressed, and he was the only seminary professor we had who was well-dressed. And so he would walk by Skippy Wood, the desk, and one day, uh, he didn't ask me for messages. He stopped, he turned, he looked at me, and he said, Householder, don't ever let anybody tell you that Christianity is a blind leap of faith. Our faith has reason, and our faith has history, and our faith has evidence. And then he walked away. That was it. I'll never forget it. It stuck with me because it's so true. And the deeper I get into it, you don't just study this stuff in seminary, but as pastors, when you're preaching most weekends and when you're leading Bible studies and you're uh, trying to figure out how do I translate this stuff to teaching confirmation kids and high school students and on and on and on, you have to keep digging deeper and deeper all the time. And the deeper I dig, the stronger my faith becomes. Because what I've discovered is that our Christianity, our faith in Jesus Christ, is not just existentially satisfying. In other words, it's not just, well, it works for me. And I can see that it works for some other people too. It's the shoe that fits us, and that's fine for us. It's like a flavor of pop. If you like that flavor, great. And if you don't, you can try something else. It's not just that it's ex existentially satisfying, where it gives us direction and meaning and purpose in life and helps us get through some hard times and, and, and helps us navigate our, our, our way through uh, the, the wilderness of life, if you will. Existentially satisfying. Our experience of Christianity. It's, it is that. But it's not just existentially satisfying. It's also intellectually credible. Faith, like Dr. Sundberg said to me that day, has reason, and there's evidence. And in order to be a Christian, I don't know who told you this lie, but it's a lie. You don't have to take a wild, blind leap of faith in order to follow Jesus, in order to believe in his life, death, and resurrection. It's actually quite plausible when you start looking at the evidence, when you start looking at the history, when you start looking at the text and the textual science surrounding it. When you look at this from all possible angles that we have available to us today, it ultimately leads you to a place, if you do so with an open mind and an open heart, it's been my experience, it leads you to a place where the only rational conclusion is that it takes more faith not to believe than it does to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. You have to come up with some wild, 
blind leaps of faith in order not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll show you what I mean. And, and, and the different uh, mythology and misunderstandings that surround the whole Easter story as we go through the sermon. And welcome, everybody. Those of you who are here, I'm blown away today. Usually the Sunday after Easter, traditionally, is the least attended worship service of the year in any church in the world. And you, I mean, we're down a little, but you guys, you blow me away. I have no idea how full it is in the campuses where I'm preaching to right now, because I'm on your big screen or your white wall at Ankeny. That's a little intimidating. Hello down there. I, I, I just want to say... You guys rock. This church is amazing. Give yourselves a big pat on the back and say, way to go. You're awesome. Some people, you know, they're not used to worshiping every week. They're woomers and tumors. You know, they're creasters. They show up when, they do, when, it, when it works out. Two weeks in a row, no possible way. So thank you. Thank you for being the kind of church that takes the Sabbath command seriously, renews every Sunday or Saturday night. Uh, enough of that. So we're going through this new series starting this weekend. I'm excited about it. It's called You Asked For It. And these are based, the sermons for the next five weeks in this post-Easter sermon series are based on questions that people ask of the church. Mostly skeptics from the outside of the church in, but also church people. Please notice that when Thomas had his doubting moment, Jesus didn't kick him out. He didn't say your, your membership is revoked. Uh, you can't follow me anymore. If anything, Jesus just gave him some gentle teaching, had grace for him. And so that's what we have for you here. We like your questions because it's been our experience through classes like Alpha, which is all based on questions, that people who have doubts, those doubts, when you do so, when you handle them in a faithful way, lead to good questions. Those good questions lead to satisfying answers. Those satisfying answers lead to a deeper faith. That's been our experience with doubt in this church. We're not afraid of it. We're not intimidated by it. We're not, oh no, you found that question. We want you to ask all the questions you've got, to bring them, to, to shine light in these areas of gray and darkness and, and where you don't know and where I don't know sometimes. So people ask for it, you ask for it, and we're going to respond to some of those questions. Today it's around Easter and did Jesus really die from the dead next week? Uh, my favorite sermon title I've ever come up with in my whole life. What's the deal with hell? That's what we're preaching on next week. A lot of people ask. They want to know. What does the Bible actually say? The next week, isn't hope big enough already? Megachurch myths and, and what's the whole point of this? And I think you'll be surprised if you think that it is big enough already. To, for who? For God? How can we pass on faith to our kids on Mother's Day uh, that weekend? And then the last one's the one I'm looking forward to the most. An open question and answer session with the pastors at Hope. You're writing the sermon that day. And you'll write it when you come into the service you attend. You'll get a little three by five note card and you can write your question or more, you can take more if you want, write your questions on it. We'll collect those, we'll put them in baskets, we'll put them up here, and then Pastor Richard will answer them. <laughs> We'll have a little panel of pastors. We're going to rotate through the day. I'll be here for all the regular services I usually preach. But we'll have some others who are joining me. We won't see your questions ahead of time. We'll just go with what we got and what we know. And we look forward to this. We do this a lot during Alpha as well. We want you to ask. We want you to be honest about your doubts. They're not a, they're not a problem. Actually, there's something God can use for good. 
because they lead to those questions which lead to those answers which lead to that deeper faith. So your doubts are welcome here and your questions are certainly welcome here. Come and bring them and we'll be examining and walking through that over the next several weeks. Here's a good place to start then with, since it's the Sundays after Easter and it's still technically the Easter season. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And what about all the mythology lit literally surrounding Easter? Have you seen the memes on social media? If you read it on the internet, you know it's true, right? That Easter is actually rooted in a pagan festival to a goddess named Ishtar from the Middle East. And that if Christians, oh, those silly, non-intellectual Christians, they just don't know their own faith. Do they realize that they say Happy Easter and they're really connecting to some dark pagan festival from ancient times? And, and that Easter eggs are a sign of a fertility cult and, and so are the bunnies and it even gets worse. I'm not even going to get into the graphic details that are also surrounding it and oh no right there are and it's almost as if skeptics who put that kind of stuff out there think that our that the entirety of our faith is going to crumble because of something as distracting and as minimal as this what about the dates of easter you ever wonder about that People say, why, why can't Christians just land on a day? When did he rise from the dead? They don't know. That's why they do it. They don't have no idea. What's, that's the, it's like Christmas. We know when Jesus was born. Well, we don't. But we picked that day anyway because we knew he was born one of the 365 days. So we got to have one. And we're gonna, it's worth celebrating his birth. That's the point. And, and then on Easter, why was it April 16th? At 6.33 a.m., the sun rose in West Des Moines, Iowa, so we had our traditional sunrise service. We're so quirky that way. The sun rises, we have a sunrise service at the same time. You think, who would go to that? The chapel was overflowing all the way. To, I, people are nuts. That's what you are. And so people show up Sunday, April 16th of this year at 6.33 a.m. That was the moment of sunrise here in West Des Moines, Iowa. If you're at another campus, it might have been 6.34, a little bit off. But what does this have to do with the date of Easter? Why wasn't Easter April 15th or the 12th or, or a Sunday before the 9th or the 2nd or the end of March? Why does it seem like it varies from March 22nd to April 25th if you're keeping score? And then it always wanders around. Why, why does it jump like that? Because of this. Does that summarize it for you? You got it? Tuesday, March 20th at 11.15 a.m., those of you who are meteorologists, and we have about seven of you in the church, will know that that was the moment of the vernal equinox in this part of the world this year, the first moment of spring, technically and officially, when the Earth's uh, equator lines up in a certain way with the sun. Putting it more simply, it's the moment when days get longer than nights in central Iowa. The days get longer and the nights are now shorter. We're, we're now to our advantage on the daylight side, starting with the vernal equinox. That's what the vernal equinox is. Tuesday, April 11th at 2.08 a.m. was the first full moon. Ooh. He's like, see, I knew it. It's all about werewolves. Ooh, that's what it's all about. It was the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And Easter is set every year since the year 325 AD, according to the Council of Nicaea, by the Christian leaders all over the world at the time. They said Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they didn't say Easter, more on that in a second. They said the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox. If you get it, say got it. Get it? 
Good. You say, well, what's spiritual about that? Actually, for centuries before Jesus was born, the Passover was celebrated on the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And the Passover, as we know from the New Testament, is the time Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So Passover time is celebration of Jesus' resurrection time for Christians. Only for Christians, for the longest time, there was this big church dividing split over it. From the time of Jesus' resurrection, around 30 AD to 325 AD, so I'll do a timeline for you. Here's the year zero. This is when Jesus was supposed to be born. But when they set the calendar a few centuries later, they missed. And he, they, they thought it was then, but they were off by a few years. He was probably born about 4 BC, if we line up the history. And he died around 30 AD. So here's his lifespan, actually probably a little shorter, right here. And then if you go from 30 AD here to 325, it, your timeline is left to right, in case you're wondering. To 325 AD right here, this was the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was called so that Christian leaders all over the world would gather together and they would hash out their church dividing issues that were threatening to split the church up. I mean, not small things, big things. And they landed on eight issues that were divisive for the church. And they went through them all one at a time. Out of this came the Nicene Creed, which is a summary of our biblical faith to unify the church. Out of this also, so heresies were dismissed, uh, the intellectuals got together, the theologians, they debated these things, they argued these things, and they came up with a unified, biblical, Bible-based understanding of Christianity, which also shed light on those factions of Christianity which had wandered off and were starting to invent their own religions. Kind of a dangerous thing still to this day. So they brought everybody back to Bible-based center at the Council of Nicaea. One of those eight issues that they uh, worked through to unify the church was the date of Easter because it was a hot fight. Some Christians says it has to be on the day of Passover. If it's a Tuesday, if it's a Thursday, whatever. Others said, no, 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 Sunday is the day of the resurrection and so it's gotta be the first Sunday after the Passover. That's the best we can do. They landed on the Sunday and they got everybody to sign on to it in 325 AD, but what that tells us is that people were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ between Jesus' resurrection and 325 AD at such a level that it rose to, the, to, to being one of the eight key issues that needed to be hashed out at the Council of Nicaea. From that we know Easter wasn't something that was invented later on and celebrated down the road. It was something that was a big deal, the central high holy festival of Christianity right from the start. And it was a big issue. That's important because as we look at the origins of Easter and people who suggest it's a Middle Eastern fertility cult origin and that Ishtar the goddess actually sounds a whole lot like Easter, Ishtar Easter, aha. And they think they're gonna blow up Christianity by saying this, and that Ishtar has eggs and bunnies as symbols, oh, those pagan things that we do, except for this prickly little fact, historically. The word Easter wasn't used 
on the Resurrection Sunday when it was celebrated from Jesus' resurrection to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. In fact, it didn't come into use. It's an Anglo-Saxon word until Christianity spread to that part of the world in 576 AD is when the first Christian missionary was sent to Germanic, Nordic, Northern European nations. So they weren't using the word Easter. So to say, oh, but it's this Middle Eastern fertility cult and Ishtar sounds just like Easter, except they didn't have the word. It isn't a Middle Eastern word. It's an Anglo-Saxon word. And so that gets completely blown out of the water immediately. But people say, yes, but there's one other fertility goddess. You're conveniently forgetting there, preacher boy. No, I'm not. Her name is Estre. Estres is Nordic, Germanic, Anglo-Saxon pagan ritual based on the goddess Estre, of which we have a grand total of one document that says that she was celebrated in mythology, Germanic Nordic theology, uh, mythology. One document written by a historian in the 8th century. The eighth century. For the longest time, the resurrection of Jesus was called the Passover, the Paschal celebration. In Greek, in Aramaic, and in Hebrew, it all meant Passover in English. So people wouldn't say Happy Easter, they'd say Happy Passover, because they knew that Jesus' death and resurrection took place at the same time as Passover, and they also liked the theme. Passover is a story about death passing over those who have the blood of a sacrificial lamb painted on the doorpost of their residence. The New Testament story is about the blood of Jesus Christ painted on the doorpost of our hearts, souls, and minds so that death passes us over and we are saved. So the Passover word works for the celebration of Jesus Christ, both in terms of calendar and theology and alignment with what we're celebrating. We're celebrating salvation. We're celebrating life over death. We're, we're celebrating victory. We're celebrating God's winning over the defeat of sin and death and darkness. So for those who say Estre, this Nordic Germanic goddess, is the reason we have uh, little Easter bunnies, because the hair is her symbol. Aha, cute little Easter bunny. See, it's actually a pagan ritual goddess, Estre. Maybe, but probably not. If so, it's just Christians coming in and seeing something dark and shining light upon it. That's what Christians always do, historically. We see something that's pagan and is off, and we bring Jesus Christ into it and take it over, overrun it and bring light into that darkness. But one of the greatest British theologian, uh, historians in the world today, Dr. Uh, Hutton, Dr. Ronald Hutton, doesn't this dude look like all he thinks about all day is history? It just does to me. I trust him, just his picture, I trust him. He writes, he's an Oxford doctor, uh, uh, professor, and now at Bristol University, Easter has been mistakenly connected with the goddess Estre, who either never existed, whoops, at all or was never associated with a particular season, but merely with the dawn itself because we learn option three or option C, depending on how you're keeping score is, Easter's an old Anglo-Saxon word that literally means the month of rising, the month of opening, the month of new beginnings, the month of spring. There's another word for it in English, April. <laughs> That's what Easter literally means in its history and in its heritage. So all of this, uh, the polite word for it is bogus 
Stuff that gets posted and said, and Sally had a co-worker said, I found out what the real meaning of Easter is. No, you actually didn't. The history says something else, and the history's on our side. Easter eggs, they were forbidden for centuries in the early Christian church. It was part of their ritual. You know, for Lent, we still give things up once in a while, Christians do. Back then, they gave up eggs, all of them. That was their big thing. We're giving up eggs for Easter because it's a big staple in our diet. Some of you gave up chocolate and you've been on a binge for a week now. (laughs) During Lent, though, you didn't touch the stuff, right? Because you gave it up for Lent. Early Christians, in totality, gave up eating eggs. It was part of their sacrifice, part of their penitence, part of following Jesus and practicing the spiritual discipline. So Easter Sunday rolled around and guess what? Egg feast. That's why we have an egg extravaganza here for the kids on Easter. And it's not detached from the celebration. Christians would bring Easter eggs to church. They would put them on the altar, but to be worthy of being put on the altar of the creator of the universe, they had to be decorated. They had to be colored and painted. And so they were painted in all these brilliant Easter egg style colors, put on the altar, and after the preacher finally got done on Easter Sunday, everybody come up and have a hard-boiled egg fest, or whatever kind of egg it was. That's the tradition of Easter eggs. It's not a pagan fertility cult. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word that means spring, new beginnings, new life, resurrection, new start. But it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy to do. Well, Easter bunnies mean this and eggs that and, and the dates and the origins and all the fertility cults. Oh, please, don't get distracted. When the risen Jesus showed up for the two followers of his who were on the road to Emmaus, by the end of the encounter they had with him, they said, didn't our hearts burn inside of us? Didn't we know? You see, they encountered the main point. The whole point of the story, they weren't lost in what was going on behind the scenes or the distractions. They were focused on the linchpin of Christianity. You pull that out, the whole thing crumbles, but they had it. The Lord has really risen, they said. They went and reported it to all the other disciples. We we saw him. We saw him alive. And then they start sharing stories. We saw him too. So did we. I saw him over here. We saw him, a bunch of us saw him over there. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, our Bible reading for today, that over 500 witnesses saw him all at the same time, in addition to the disciples. It's as if Paul is daring his reader, if you don't believe me, ask the people who still live in this town. Paul wrote that between 15 and 20 years after the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't just have four uh, valid, historically written accounts about Jesus' resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have five. We got Paul. In fact, Paul wrote his before the four Gospels. They wrote theirs after Paul did. Paul writes 15 to 20 years. People will hear that and say, isn't that a little long? Not in first century history, it isn't. If you believe Caesar invaded Gaul, do you realize you're basing that on nine documents that have been found dating back to 800 years after the actual event? Caesar invaded Gaul about the same time as the time of Christ, basic same era. The first historical document we have saying that happened was written 800 years later. 800 years later. I don't have any problem believing it. That's just how history is written in ancient times. So 15 years is a very tiny gap. There are only eight or nine copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars, but 
there are over 25,000 manuscripts dating back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and five eyewitnesses. Paul writes his just 15 to 20 years, which is lightning fast in history, in written history in the first century. Nothing else even remotely comes close to comparing. I didn't pick Caesar because it's this huge contrast. I picked Caesar because it's one of the only other things we have written documents on. Go ahead and look this up. There's nothing even remotely close to the Gospels of Jesus Christ and the letters of Paul, the New Testament. Plus there's this. People say, yeah, but by 15 to 20 years, aren't you going to forget some stuff? Do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Me too. Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember who you were with? Do you remember how you heard the news? Do you remember that? Could you sit down and write a few paragraphs about that accurately? Stuff that happened 15 to 20 years ago? Because it did. And yet, when it's a big moment like that, a big event like that, it gets burned into your memory. You don't have trouble remembering the details. You you can recall them just like that. So Paul, 15 to 20 years, same time period we have between now and September 11, 2001, sat down in that, that same gap, and he said, it's time to write it down. Here's what happened. Here's what I saw. Here's what the other gospel writers added their voices to it, too. So here's what we saw. We don't just have one. We have five written accounts of Jesus' resurrection. You say, yeah, but you're conveniently ignoring all the other written accounts that say he didn't rise from the dead. There are none. There's not one. Not one manuscript dated back to anywhere near that time period that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Not, you'd think there'd be one. Especially since the movement of Christianity was causing such a big stir. You'd think somebody from the group of the disciples would have rebelled and said, well, here's my chance to get a lot of attention. I'm going to say what really happened. Here's the real story. Why wasn't there one? Why didn't somebody somewhere along the way straighten it out? Why don't we have even one archaeological document that says it didn't happen? Because we've got over 25,000 that say it did. At a certain point, Christianity isn't just an existentially satisfying venture. It's an intellectually credible truth that sets us free. Here's the big claims. And I want to ask you, what do you do with these? First big claim, there was a man who claimed to be God. And this isn't just Christians who claim this. This is any serious history scholar in the world today will acknowledge these six points. They're not saying necessarily that they believe he was God, they're just saying there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be God. That's historically indisputable. So are these next five things. Second big claim, thousands of people saw him do miraculous things or at the very least what appeared to be miraculous things. You see, that's the distinction of Christianity. We're not basing our faith in some individual person who had a private spiritual experience, saw an angel, caught a vision, uh, had a a sense of God, had a dream, had a moment, then came down from the mountain and said, hey, here's my new religion, you got to believe this. Well, what basis do we have to believe it? My word. One person who had a private experience. So you have to believe me because it happened. One person says... Christianity is based not on a private encounter between one spiritual guru or leader and and some sort of heavenly kind of vision. 
It's not private at all, it's public. It's public events witnessed by hundreds, if not thousands of people. Thousands of people saw Jesus take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed an entire crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. Thousands of people were there to see it. Hundreds of people saw him do other miracles. Healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, deaf, walking on water, and on and on and on and on it went. Public history, public events. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, this is who I am, you have to believe it. It's people seeing it, signs of it. Over 500, hear Paul again, over 500 of us saw the risen Jesus all at the same time. Ask the people who are still living, Paul says, if you don't believe me. It was a public thing. It's an event that either happened or it didn't. Our faith is not based on somebody saying, I had a vision and you have to believe it. Our faith as Christians is based on the collective eyewitness accounts of thousands of people who all said the same thing and there's not one counter to what they wrote down, what they witnessed. Not one that says, eh, it didn't happen. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What do you do with that? Because now it's starting to get serious, isn't it? I mean, Jesus really did rise from the dead. Oh, I don't want to sell you Ginsu knives today, but wait, there's more. Three, third big claim. Not only did he claim to be God, and if you don't think he did, read the Gospels, but he convinced other people that he was God. His disciples didn't just follow him as a rabbi and as a teacher and as a spiritual revolutionary. They worshiped him as God. They came to the point where they realized what they were dealing with. Fourth big claim. These are historic, nobody disputes these. They might dispute whether he was God or if these people were right or not, but these are the claims. His tomb was empty, nobody disputes that. Even the most hardened uh, histor historical scholars get into debates with Christians like N.T. Wright. And if you want more on this, if this is your cup of tea, this kind of stuff, we don't usually preach in this direction, but today it's kind of fun. I highly recommend this little book by N.T. Wright, the uh, biblical scholar and historian. It's only 810, six, 816 pages long. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, this could help. But it's also fascinating. I mean, he offers an exhaustive, intellectual, academic, historically valid approach to the evidence for the resurrection. It's good reading. His tomb was empty. When N.T. Wright debated uh, an agnostic scholar a few years ago, he actually got the agnostic scholar to say, yeah, you're right, his tomb was empty. That's kind of a problem for us, but we think there might be some other explanation. Fifth big claim, after he died, Jesus, hundreds of people saw him alive. I already talked about that. Sixth big claim, and this is the one that I find most fascinating these days. Many of his followers were completely transformed. These are the disciples. These are his followers. Where were they when Jesus died? Doing what you and I would have done. Running for their lives. The Roman Empire is breathing down your throat. Not just some religious group. The Roman Empire, arguably the most powerful empire in the history of this world, is coming after you. They just crucified your leader, and you belong to him. So guess what they're going to do to you next? You need to get out of town. You, you need to split. 
And so the disciples wisely are running away, except for John. He apparently has the courage to believe it and stand with Jesus right to the end. And the women who are incredibly courageous, the disciples who are women. The other 11 named disciples, the men, are running away for good reason. But then, suddenly, that's Friday, suddenly out of nowhere, out of nowhere, practically, literally, overnight, they completely transform and change. They go from people who are running away for good reason to people who go right out into the public square of Jerusalem because they don't care anymore. And they say, he is risen. And they spend the rest of their lives risking their lives, and some of them are crucified and executed for it, just to get the word out, just to share the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead. If it wasn't true at some point, wouldn't you come clean? If you made up the conspiracy, if you were a part of manufacturing the hoax, before they nail you to a cross, wouldn't you say, ah, I, okay, we made it up. I'd think about it. I'd do it. If I made it up and it wasn't true and they're going to kill me, I'd come clean. Why didn't any of them do that? Because it's true. Jesus rose from the dead. It's by far the most logical and plausible option. Many of his followers were completely transformed. So the question I have for you today, for you, not just historians and scholars, you. How do you account for all this? How does this add up for you? What's your explanation outside of Jesus' resurrection that all this stuff happened? How do you put it all together? There are different theories. One is for the empty tomb and all these other five things that Jesus fainted and played dead. <laughs> that was quite an act, right? You get nails through your hands and you get nails through your feet. That tends to kill you. Don't take my word for it. Take Mayo Clinic uh, a pathologist, a guy who does autopsies for a living at the Mayo Clinic his whole career, who recently wrote in the Journal of the American Medical Association, clearly the weight of historical, this is a little dry, but it's a medical journal, clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs perforated not only the right lung but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. He goes on to say, Dr. Edwards does, that there could be no possible other medical conclusion that when you get crucified, you're going to die. It's not like there were exceptions to the rule. People got crucified and it didn't quite work. It didn't quite kill them. Crucifixion will kill you every time. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, in addition to that, we're talking about professional executioners. The Roman soldiers who were assigned by the Roman Empire to do their job. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. And no disciple would have been fooled by a half-drug beat up Jesus into thinking he defeated death and inaugurated the kingdom of God. So what do we do with these claims? Jesus didn't fake it. There's no possible way, medically, scientifically, practically, that he could have. So we have to look for another option. Maybe his disciples just embellished the story, you know, created a legend. Of course, there's the problem with that, that they got crucified and killed for it, and wouldn't you stop that at some point? But maybe, you know, the fish I caught was this big. And as time passes, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the guy you talk to who, when he was in high school, was on the second string on the football team, but by the time he's 60 years old, he was all state. 
You know, the story just kind of keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. Yeah, I was the man. Maybe the disciples just, you know, were human about it. Maybe they'll let the story kind of wander out of control. Like, not only did Jesus lead us to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and do all these wonderful, miraculous things, but, but uh, he rose from the dead. Yeah, that's what he did. He rose from the dead. There's a big problem with this um, account or this theory or this understanding of the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection and those other six big claims. The problem is if you're going to invent a story and you're a first century Jewish guy, which all the disciples were, Jesus was too, if you're going to invent a story, you're not going to make up a story about the resurrection of a dead man. There was no messianic expectation for that amongst the Jews. They weren't expecting a resurrection. They weren't like, well, we'll know it's the Messiah when he rises from the dead. Nobody was looking for that. Their only thought about a resurrection was after we die, when everything ends, if a Messiah comes, maybe everybody will be resurrected from the dead. Mary and Martha talk about that with Jesus at Lazarus, their brother's tomb. We believe there's a resurrection someday. And then Jesus says, yeah, but I'm it. I'm the resurrection life. So first century religious Jews wouldn't be looking for a resurrection. So why does that matter? If you're going to embellish a story about the resurrection of Jesus, wouldn't you want it to meet the expectations of the people you're trying to persuade? Why would you invent a story about a bodily resurrection when nobody needed there to be a bodily resurrection for Jesus to qualify as the Messiah? Well, you'd do it if it was true. If he really rose from the dead, not just spiritually, but physically. That his body died and his body rose from the dead. You would have no other motivation to write your story that way. Because the people you're trying to convince wouldn't have expected that as one of the prerequisites for the Messiah. They would have been looking for other things. The other problem with that is if you're going to embellish a story, if you're going to make it up, you wouldn't have made it up the way they did. Two things. One is you wouldn't have put women at the tomb. Uh, because in an upside-down misogynistic culture like first-century Middle Eastern culture was women's uh, testimony wasn't permissible in a court of law. So if you're trying to make the case for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and you're making up the story, you'd put men at the tomb. It wouldn't be women because in that culture, women's testimony wasn't trusted. That's a big problem. Another problem is if you're going to do this, if you're going to manufacture a story, you're going to want to do so in a way that's going to um, capture the imaginations of the people who are there. And so you're going to write it as legend and not as history. But any English major, that's me, can tell you that the Gospels are not written as legend, they're written as history, genre of literature. Those are two very different things. Ask anybody who studied the, the uh, literature. History is one kind of approach to writing. Legend or, or nonfiction is another. If you're writing nonfiction, and you're writing it well, like the Gospels are written extremely well, you don't write it in a way where you throw meaningless details out there that don't contribute to the plot, that don't contribute to your hero being the hero. But if you write history, you include it because, well, it happened. So Jesus is intervening when the woman who's caught in adultery is about to be stoned to death by the, by the self-righteous religious people. And he says, if you don't have any sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And they drop their stones and walk away. And Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. I forgive you. 
But you know, there's that part of the story. You ever wonder about that part of the story? It's right there in John 8 where it says Jesus knelt down and he started drawing something in the, in the dirt. Remember that part? You ever wonder what that means? You ready? I'll tell you. Definitive answer. I have no idea. <laughs> and neither does anyone else. Why is it included? If it's legend, if it's nonfiction, you don't, that's not, that's just one of many examples in the Gospels. If you're writing legend, if you're writing nonfiction, you don't include stuff like that. You don't put tangent details in there that don't contribute to your legendary plot. Why do you do it when you're writing history? Because it happened. Because that's what Jesus did. So they're writing history. They're not coming up with some manufactured conspiracy. They wouldn't have written it the way they did, and it didn't fit the first century Jewish culture. So this one gets absolutely erased. We're running out of options. And so in desperation, skeptics say his body was stolen. Well, good luck with that one. You're, if you're the Roman government, what's your motivation to steal his body? You have none. In fact, your motivation is to keep his dead body in there so there isn't a revolution. If you're the Pharisees, what's your motivation? Uh, the, the, the temple priests to make sure that, that, that you steal his body. You have no motivation either. The only people who have motivation to steal his body, the disciples. Okay, back to the part about them running away for their lives for good reason. They're going to take on the Roman guards who are armed. They're not an army. They're not trained in combat. How are they going to take on the Roman guards who are guarding the sealed tomb and roll away the two-ton tombstone, pull out Jesus' dead body, and like I said in the Easter sermons last week, then make the bed on their way out the door? At a certain point, we look at all the other possibilities for these historical truths that everybody agrees happened. They're big claims. And this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, so we're left, much to our surprise sometimes, as people who take things intellectually seriously, and we realize there's only one more option. And this is a really good one. He actually rose from the dead. It's what all the eyewitnesses point to. It's what all the history points to. It's what all the evidence points to. It's what the nature of first century Judaism points to. It's what the genre of literature in the Gospels and in Paul's epistles points to. It all points to the same thing. You don't have to believe it based on this. I can't prove it to you, but all the evidence is on our side. It takes more faith to believe one, two, or three than it does four. You have to spin some incredible yarns I mean, you have to come up with some wild stories not to land here. A scholar far more brilliant than I put it this way, N.T. Wright, author of this book again. You can go through all the theories and you bring all those theories to the actual facts that we know on the ground from the first century and they just don't fit. The only way you can explain the rise of the early Christian belief that Jesus was raised, hear this part, don't get distracted is there really was an empty tomb. And they really did meet Jesus alive again in a transformed body. It's the only rational conclusion that makes sense. And so I remember Dr. Sundberg. Don't ever let anybody tell you your Christian faith is a blind leap of faith. It's grounded in reason, in history, in evidence. And it's not just existentially satisfying, it's intellectually credible. 
It has reasons to it. Here's our case. Exhibit A, the empty tomb. B, the witnesses. C, the disciples, their transformation. And D, I saved the best for last, you. Your evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're a part of this Christian movement. And when you look at it honestly, well, it's quite surprising. And I'm not just talking about surprising that 20-some years ago, 52 people showed up for our Easter service at Hope. And this last weekend, over 29,000 people showed up for our Easter services at Lutheran Church of Hope. How do you figure that? I mean, I know I'm good looking and that's a draw. <laughs> I know that's not a draw. That God could do this through us is all the more evidence that something big happened, something bigger than us, something beyond what I can do and what you can do and even what we can do collectively together. There's a movement that started. There was an explosion in history. Something happened that stirred something else. One thing leads to another, and this movement is something that we continue to be a part of today. Listen to what the way the scholars put it. A, a Yale historian, Kenneth Scott Latteret. Why among all the cults and philosophies competing in the Greco-Roman world did Christianity succeed and outstrip all the others, despite getting more severe opposition than any other faith? Why did it succeed though it had no influential backers? Think about that. Christians weren't influential people. They didn't know people in high places, but consisted mainly of the poor and slaves. How did that movement survive and the Roman Empire fell? How did it succeed so completely that it outlived the most powerful empire in history that sought to uproot it? It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, listen to this, there must have occurred a vast release of energy. Something big happened. Something world-changing happened. Something radically transformational happened. Otherwise, you can't explain over two billion Christians on planet Earth today. Starting like this? How do you explain it? Unless something big did happen. Unless a man, a carpenter from Nazareth, who's God in the flesh, showed up and did what everybody publicly saw him do. And they all testified to, and there's no counter to their testimony. That he lived, died, and then much to our surprise, because we weren't expecting it, he rose from the dead to win a victory over sin and death, not just for himself, but for everybody who belongs to him. That's you. G.K. Chesterton, the great author and historian, puts it this way, Christianity, much more succinctly, whatever else it is, it's an explosion. Unless it is sensational, there's simply no sense in it. You can't logically work it out. It's you. 29,000 plus people show up for Easter, and it's not the number that's impressive, it's that those numbers count people. And when people hear this good news, they get transformed if their hearts and minds are open to it. And maybe that's your story too. It's the 74 junior high kids who lined up to be baptized and gave their lives to Christ a couple of Wednesdays ago. It's starting new churches like the one we're starting in Ames in a few weeks. It's all of you getting together for the last six weeks during Lent. Get this. You gave over a half a million dollars together as a church to start new churches in Western Africa. We'll announce the final numbers. They're going to 
they're just, they continue to blow us away. You should stop giving to it now, really. I mean, we're done. No, you can keep giving. I'm kidding. Give as much as you want, whatever the Lord leads you to do. How do you explain all this? How do you explain all the other things? That's how I do it. He's still risen. He's alive. It's the explosion that starts all of this. It's why there were the public testimonies. It's why the literature is the way it is. It's why history is the way it is. It's why the evidence lines up the way it does. Your faith isn't just a shoe that fits and works for you. It's a truth. It's something that actually happened. So you know what that means? This is God's gift to the whole world. Christians, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, agnostics, skeptics, atheists, New Age spiritualists, everybody. He's still risen for everybody. And his grace pours out for all of us. And the new life he offers comes to us because he is still risen.